What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. What's up, kitty cats, and welcome back to the original, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast that I have been doing for close to five years now. And we're going to get back on format this week a little bit after three weeks of huge, huge mega shows from the Libertarian National Convention in New Orleans, which was just a magical, magical, liberty-filled time. But I'm going to have a great guest for you today, Dr. Eric Larson. We're going to talk a little bit about Ron Paul. Not sure if you guys have ever heard me mention that name before. And uh, about medical cartels. So very interesting stuff coming your way in this episode, which is episode number 358 of the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. That means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 358. And I want you guys to stay tuned a little bit later in the show where I'm going to give you some information about an anti-war country song by a listener of this program named Zach Kincaid. And you can get a free download of that song if you just tune in to this program for a little bit longer. And lastly, I do want to make this announcement at the top of the show here today because I mentioned it at the end of last week's program, but it is official now. We will be launching a new, very short-term spinoff program called Candidates of Liberty, in which we'll be featuring very short interviews with different libertarian candidates all around the country. And we really want to do something to help the libertarian candidates, since I had met so many great ones this weekend, so many of whom had reached out asking for interviews, and there's just no way we could accommodate everybody, or even a small portion of the people who wanted to get interviewed and and spread the word about their campaign. So we decided to do something extra to go even more out of our way and provide a new show for you. So that's going to be starting sometime in mid-August, and it is called Candidates of Liberty. So look forward to that coming down the pipeline. If you appreciate the work we do, all the extra work we are doing for this show, please do consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride and becoming a supporter of ours on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to all sorts of bonus content, Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, bonus libertarians and living rooms drinking liquor shows, so much more. I can't even describe it all. Plus, we are uploading the whole archive from the last year and a half or so. So there's just tons of content coming up there right now. And if you want to toss us a few bucks, it would be greatly appreciated. That enables us to do stuff like attend the Libertarian National Convention, like attend Porkfest and bring you all sorts of programming from those events. And it enables us to do more shows like what we're doing with Candidates of Liberty upcoming. So please do check us out. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. But enough promotion, folks. Let's get to the show. All right, here with me today is an assistant clinical professor of anesthesiology at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine. He is the chair of the Kent County Medical Society and the host of the Paradox podcast. That's docs with a C as in doctors, not paradox, not the other paradox. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Eric Larson. Dr. Larson, are you ready to roar? 
I am, but I'm a long-suffering Lions fan, if you're from Michigan. So we don't, our, oh, our roars are more of a whimper <laughs> nowadays. And so it's kind of, you know, it is sort of the meow right now. So there's a lot of a lot of worlds kind of coming together here, right? There's the Libertarian Lions and your own Lions. Right. My Lions have not won a playoff. They've only won one playoff game in my lifetime, which is pretty sad because I'm getting kind of old up there in age. All right. Well, we'll try not to think about them too much <laughs> during our time together here. <laughs> we don't right. want to bring the mood down, but you know, Dr. Larson, I've seen you around a little bit. I know you recently started your podcast and uh, you're really getting out there and talking about libertarian ideas, but also talking about them kind of through the perspective of, of being a professional doctor, which I, I think is always great because libertarians love to talk about all their ideas about how things should be, but you often get criticisms like, Oh, what do you know? You're not a, you're not a fill in the blank. You're not a doctor. So it's always good on to bring, you know, to actually speak to an actual doctor who I can say, yes, well, this guy is. So listen to him. So why don't we get started just talking a little bit about how you first uh, became interested in libertarian ideas and uh, how you got started in the medical field. I don't know which of those came first, so I'll let you kind of just start things off and take it uh, from wherever it makes the most sense. Well, I think uh, as a kid growing up in high school, even is when it started to become politically aware. And so at that point, like sort of a traditional Republican family, I suppose I came from, but not uh, there certainly wasn't any deep philosophical underlyings of sort of what, you know, any principles that you sort of have aside from taxes are kind of annoying and the government doesn't do things very well. Right. So sort of that was sort of the extent of it. Right. The, and I went to college I went to university of Michigan as an undergrad for, uh, um, got my bachelor's in nuclear engineering. Anyway, when I was there, I got, I, um, probably had libertarian leanings, but no, I might, I think I read Atlas Shrugged in high school, but I'm not sure maybe like a junior or senior year, uh, was at, I was a freshman and Leonard Peikoff came to give a talk on uh, buying American is un-American. And so I thought, well, I'm at college. I'm supposed to hear, you know, find all these different, you know, challenge myself with different ideas. So I went to the talk and it made a lot of sense, you know, that, that actually the comparative advantages and all sorts of economics that, that a nationalistic sort of view of the world is not the right way. So anyway. Previously as a Republican, did you just kind of have that sort of nationalist idea that, you know, I got to buy American products, I got to buy Budweiser's, I got to buy Toyota's because that's the right thing to do because we're all Americans and we're all in this together? Pro- I mean, probably. I Again, I don't think it was very sophisticated, you know, thinking as far as right. what I was, you know, I didn't have a big worldview at, at the time. Uh, when I was a junior, I think in high school, that's when the first Gulf War launched. Uh, so that was certainly at that point, I was maybe 16, 17. And so then the thought of a draft is a possibility. I mean, there hadn't been, that was the first major war since Vietnam. I mean, obviously it was over in like, you know, three seconds, uh, you know, but there was that, that concern was there and the thought was there. And so just sort of the thoughts of getting drafted and that's the right sort of thing. If you have, if the government has a power and the right to tell you what to do as far as, you know, go get yourself killed or whatever. Right. Uh, and so then, at college, it was kind of a natural extension when I saw the libertarianism. And then I got involved the the paper at, at Michigan called the Michigan Review, which was sort of the alternative publication and uh, the non-daily paper that was a conservative bent, sort of framed around the National Review uh, that they had a number of these uh, national, these review sort of uh, newspapers all over the country, different colleges. Ours was very libertarian, and there were some deeper libertarian thinkers uh, who was there. And at that time, and that was the 90s, libertarianism was really kind of, didn't really exist. I mean, in some ways, it existed, but it was very, very fringish, right? If you say- Some would say it doesn't exist now. Well, but. <laughs> it is, it has completely transformed since I was, because when I would tell people I'm libertarian, they had, they'd never heard the term. I mean, I think it's, right. now people at least have heard it. They may not know what it means, but they certainly, 
didn't have any clue what you're talking about. They might have wild, mischaracterized ideas about what that is, but at least they have heard yes. of it. And, and that's something. And that's, that is a tremendous leap forward from what it was. I mean, then you really were a piece of tumbleweed flowing, you know, blowing around in the desert because there was no one else you'd run into. Pretty much that was a libertarian. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, I was, so I worked at that paper. I learned about a little bit more. Um, I actually got dabbled in objectivism for a little bit, kind of got a little tired of the dogmatic sort of portion of, do- of objectivism. And then I got involved in the Libertarian Party of Washtenaw County, which is the county, in, which is, I mean, you just want to talk about small. That's like, you know, meets in a, a, a small library. You can meet the entire party. But met some really neat people, met the, got a little better feeling for what libertarianism was. And my friend, who actually now is finishing his third term in the Michigan State Legislature, uh, we went to the Libertarian Presidential Convention in 1980, no, sorry, 1996, which was Harry Brown. And we right. got in as delegates, which, you know, you know, you had to do a show up and you pretty much became a delegate to the party. I, uh, that, that's pretty much true now because yes. I became a delegate to this last convention pretty much by accident. I was already planning to go there to uh, cover it for the podcast and to do interviews. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks beforehand, um, uh, Angela McArdle, who's the uh, L.A. County chair out here, just said, hey, uh, is anybody else? Um, is any, can anybody make it there? Can anybody be a delegate? And I'm a member of the party and I was going to be there. So I said, well, I mean, I'm going to be there. Yeah, yeah. So if you need to make me a delegate, go for it. So uh, this is one thing. And. We talked a little bit before the show about um, my appearance on the Jason Sableton program, which by the time people hear this will have been a week or two ago. But, you know, that was the one thing that I brought up to him is that sometimes all it takes is literally, literally just showing up to uh, to get involved in something and to start making an impact. And no question. And in, in many ways, like I'm the I run the Kent County Medical Society. It's just a one year term here, in, which is uh, obviously in Kent County, Michigan, Grand Rapids. But that was much, very much a, you know, any volunteers, everyone takes a step back and you're the one left standing there, right? It's, it's the same thing in the Libertarian Party. Like if you're right. willing to, to show up and do something, there's plenty to do. And there's probably more, far more than you could ever accomplish. And so, you know, it's easy to get, have an impact within the party. How great that impact is, you know, that's where the debate lies, I suppose, you know, ultimately. Uh, so anyway, then once I, after that, I went to medical school at the University of Iowa. Um, I was there for eight years, met my wife. She's a pediatrician. So we met third year medical school. I did my training in anesthesiology. And so after eight years in Iowa City, I moved back to Michigan. I, I grew up in Lansing here and I, I settled in private practice here in Grand Rapids in 2004. I didn't do any sort of libertarian activity or very minimal uh, while I was in Iowa, just because it's medical school and residency. You just don't have, you don't have time to you know do much aside from just read. Do anything. I mean, except study, I had, I right. I mean, you have Reason Magazine and I, and occasionally I look at, you know, reason websites and things like that. But I mean, that was kind of the extent of my contact with libertarians. It was before you had so many great libertarian podcasts out there that you could go and listen yeah, to. Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't know what a podcast was until about three years ago, four years ago. I, yeah, I don't think most yeah, people did. I mean, it, now it's like a thing. Now, if I tell people I do a podcast, they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. They actually know what it is. Most people, I mean, it's like, it's like the word libertarian. Now they've at least heard of a podcast, even if they don't know how it right. is or how to listen exactly. to it. Exactly. I mean, I, yeah, there are a lot of surgeons and nurses. I show how to actually load the, do you have an iPhone? I'll show you. <laughs> it's pretty easy. And I can download it for right. them. I don't know if they end up listening to it, but they, they can rewire someone's brain, but they aren't quite sure how to subscribe to it. Well, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to be very good at what you do. <laughs> you don't have to, yes. You don't have to, no matter what that <clears> is. Right. As long as you're the best at that, that's all that matters. Whether you can tie your shoes are well, they just buy some Velcro shoes, right? Or whatever. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I came here to Michigan in 2004 and then I uh, got involved because I had a little more time. My family's very 
smaller and younger at that time. And so I got involved in the Libertarian Party here locally. And uh, I ended up being chair of the West Michigan Libertarian Party for, I don't know, a year or two. I can't, I can't remember exactly when, 2007 or something, six or so. And uh, you sort of became disillusioned with the party and just, you know, it's ineffectiveness. And anyway, it was just, a lot of it was you're running candidates, but you're not running effective candidates. You're trying, you're just struggling to, you know, is it important to have candidates? There's all those debates you have, right? Whether it's the educational component, whether it's a political component. Right. I, I think, you know, my thinking that has changed now as far as what is probably the most important if you want to, you know, push the message and the, the movement. Um, but anyway, at that time, it just didn't seem like, it seemed like you kind of spinning your wheels. And then... Well, I can't let that go. I got to <laughs> dig in a little more here. Uh, what, so how, how, what was your sort of idea at the time and how has that changed? Well, my idea at the time was that uh, it initially was that we need to run candidates. We need to have a third a third option for people. I mean, they're, you know, Constitution Party, Green Party. But from fundamentally, when it looks for, when you look for a philosophical, philosophical approach to government, it was important to have a real choice, right? I mean, the Democrats and Republicans are very similar in many ways as far as, you know, they're arguing about things. Uh, and they use state solutions for, you know, most things. And so anyway, I thought it was important to have that other party. I became disillusioned because I just didn't see it moving the needle. I talked to people. I still didn't know. I ran for statewide office twice, actually. Uh, I was one year, I think it was 2006, I was a top delegate for the state party in the, in the state for running for uh, college, the regent position at the University of Michigan. doesn't mean much. Just I think there are just a lot of people who seem to know Eric Larson's, and that's my guess of how I was the most successful. <laughs> then what happened is 2007. And we all know what happened in 2007 if you got any sort of – and so I was uh, – you want me to go into my Ron Paul story? I'm happy to. Absolutely. I, I I've been I've done over 350 podcasts, and I I would say probably at least 250 of them include a Ron Paul story from somebody. Yeah, so right. We can so, always use more. So I'll tell you my I'll tell you my Ron Paul story. I'll give you an extended story too. So I one day I was down in my in, in I can say honestly I've watched C-SPAN like just truly watched it maybe twice in my life when I didn't have know something I have no idea how I randomly turned on but I turned on C-SPAN. And it was right after, this is, I think, in February of 2007, maybe March or January. And Ron Paul was giving a floor speech about, you know, gold standard and his usual sort of, you know, his stump speech, but he's giving on the, the house floor. And so I was listening to that and um, I thought, wow, this guy is pretty cool and pretty good. I like what he has to say. And he sounds pretty libertarian. He's a Republican. Uh, and then I, remember, then I remembered vaguely or I looked it up or something that he had run for president in the Libertarian Party in like 1984, I think, or something, or 88, maybe. 88, yeah. Anyway, so I thought, well, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll just follow this guy. And uh, I like him. So he's guaranteed to finish last. And he's guaranteed to get garner no support, like maybe 0.01% of the, you know, it'll be, the campaign will be short, and it'll be quick. And it'll be very small. Uh, and so at that time, I mean, it's, again, it's only been 11 years. But there was, I mean, there was obviously no coverage from the mainstream media for the most part for his campaign. And they had much better stranglehold on information at that time. But there were all these, YouTube, I mean, YouTube is a new thing, right? And so you could watch these videos, these supporters would put up what he was doing. And so I got uh, real excited about his campaign. I liked what he was saying. I liked the fact that I saw people getting excited about this. I mean, he had students at the University of Michigan, which is, I mean, it's not the most left-wing ca- campus in the, in the university, in the public university in the country, but it's probably top 10 or so. I mean, it's like, you know, UW-Madison or, or uh, Berkeley. 
And their students chanting and the Fed. I mean, that's totally insane. I believe that's where like the and the Fed chant started. The actual, yeah. the first one that kind of spontaneously began when he was just up there uh, talking about the Federal Reserve. And uh, it was Michigan State of all places where uh, the, spontaneously this and the Fed chant just started going. And I, I remember I've I seen the video of it and just seeing kind of the, uh, the look of shock, amazement and joy on his face all at once. Just, I think, all those emotions coming together of this thing that he'd been talking about for 30 years that no one hardly paid any attention to. And here he is at the University of Michigan with an end the fen chat that just spontaneously began. So that must have been a, I mean, it probably gave you chills just watching it and seeing it. I mean, I imagine if you're actually Dr. Paul. <laughs> and and right now, just talking about this, I got sort of like the chills, you know, I mean, you kind of feel like, in, like right. <laughs> kind of hair saying it in because it's, it was really, it was like magical moment, really. Um. But what happened before that was even kind of stranger for me. So uh, my church, uh, we had two pastors. We had a, um, a pastor, Paul, and we had a pastor, um, a pastor, David. The main pastor is Pastor Paul Karpinski. The other one was, I did, he was a retired guy who was like from Southeast Michigan. So I didn't think much of it. And then that's sort of a side note. And then uh, we were going to the, there are all the presidential candidates were gathering at, at, Mich- at Mackinac Island, which is an, an island in, in the Lake Huron in northern Michigan. Beautiful island. If you've, never been, if no, you've not been there, highly recommend. It's a great vacation place. They have only, only horses allowed on the island. It's just kind of kind of quaint and neat. So the Republicans, every off-election year, have a political conference, and that they were having a bunch of – all the candidates were basically going to show up because that time they were like 10 or something like that, you know, with Fred Thompson, Giuliani, and all these guys. And um, – so my wife and I, just, we, we, we contributed, there was, Ron Paul had a, a fundraiser there on the island. And so we decided to go to the conference. We decided to go to the fundraiser and because our friends, um, we, we just thought it'd be kind of fun. And so then we, we max donated to that special event. Well, it turns out if you're a max donor to a Ron Paul campaign event in 2007, you're the <laughs> max donor to the Ron Paul campaign event in 2007, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're so, expecting to be at the, the huge table with all the VIPs, yeah, but you're the VIP, right. it turns out. So <laughs> so what's really interesting is as we're packing up to go, we're in drive up, uh, it's like a three-hour trip. Our friend calls us and said, hey, do you know that Ron Paul's brother is your pastor? I said, what? She said, yeah, Pastor David. <laughs> pastor David Paul is his brother. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I think so. And you guys like Ron Paul, right? I'm like, well, yeah, but what, you know, what are the odds that could happen? There's no way. So we drive up to the, to the conference. And we're there and he gives a breakfast speech the day, um, one of the mornings. And I turned to my wife, I said, there is no question that is our pastor's brother. Cause you know, they have different accents because I think Ron grew up, spent most of his time in Texas and his brother was in Pennsylvania, Michigan, but like mannerisms, you know how that sort of siblings have sort of similar, thing. the way they hold the lectern right. and talk is that like, there is, I mean, little question that they are related. So we actually hop on our bikes. We ride down to the hotel uh, where they're having the fundraiser right afterwards. We're the first ones there and also we're the only Max donors. <laughs> so we get in and we're waiting and Ron Paul arrives and I've got 15 minutes with Ron Paul all by myself with my wife. So we're talking to him for a bit. I said, you know, I'm pretty sure your brother is our pastor. And he said, oh, David, is he down? You know, yeah, because he happened to be, he and his wife were on a trip to Italy. So we're like, oh yeah. And uh so we talked for a while. And of course, I've got 15 minutes all alone with Ron Paul. What do I talk about? Do I talk about economics? Do I talk about gold standard? No, I talk about cesarean sections and sort of what? <laughs> and medicine. And not like Obamacare, but sort of like, you know, just 
kind of what do you do for C-sections and stuff. And so we just talked about that kind of stuff. Later, all the pe- flood people come in, they talk. So my wife doesn't say where she's standing next to me the whole time. So we go back from the conference, get back to church. And I go up to the, pe- the next week, the pastor comes back from vacation. I said, Pastor David, do you know that I ran to your brother? And he was wondering where you were. He's like, oh, Ron was there. Yeah, great. And uh, yeah, he said he met this really nice blonde woman from my church. I said, oh, well, I mean, he, he met a couple of us, right? He just mentioned her. He didn't say anything else. <laughs> so, he didn't mention a, a man there with her at all. <laughs> no, the guy who was talking to him. Clearly, I wasn't very interested in talking about C-sections, right? So, um, so what happened then is his brother, of course, he's in, he was about, I think, three or four years older than Ron. And he, did, he had you know, no dial-up, right? I and mean, this is, again, hard for people to believe in 2007. Uh, so he had really no internet access. And so the campaign, the only way to follow it is, of course, through the internet, the YouTube and you know, these, the money bombs and all this crazy stuff that was happening. You weren't going to tune into Fox News or CNN and see, and see anything about no. the Ron Paul campaign. No, and the money bombs and where he raised all that money suddenly. I mean, we knew about this happening. We'd, he'd say, yeah, I talked to Ron. He said, there's going to be this thing happening. I said, yeah, no, I know all about it. Uh, and so I would give him updates and say, oh, you should, we saw this and that. And there's a speech he gave here or whatever. And so we sort of had this, we had developed a really neat relationship with he and his wife who are, you know, he's a retired pastor from Southeast Michigan who just came and helped out our church. He just moved out to the side of the state. And um, so anyway, the campaign was over. We invited he and his wife to the camp, the, um, the party. And so during that whole time in 2007, I was, we had meetup groups because that was the way he sort of got together and sort of ran the, the, the Paul campaign because there was no Ron Paul campaign essentially. They had some. You know, it's just it's just whoever shows up to whatever to, right. to meet so, up I mean, and you that had, sort of thing. You can't get a sign. You can you could get some. You had to order your own like bills. You know, like the hand bills that you'd hand out and stuff. So we would order right. stuff, and there were a bunch of us in town. I was like the publicity coordinator or something like that. So at that point, then I started showing up at Republican Party meetings, which were, I mean, because that was John McCain at that time. Uh, pretty much, he was you know the front runner, and there was nobody in the Republican. I mean, there. were, you go to the the public the county meetings and there was there was like three people and, and this is the one of the largest county parties in the country. Just no, there was no grassroots support for the candidates that time. You know, there's three regular Republican people and there were like twenty of us Ron Paul people in the room, not trying to take over, just trying to get involved and try and help. So we like we set up the Tea Parties, you know, the initial Tea Party that happened after Obama got elected because we were the ones who were around. Um, but anyway, uh, so then I w- so then after the election was over. I note I was during the elect during the uh, campaign before the January primary in Michigan. I looked up for all the FEC donors to Ron Paul, and of course there aren't that many, so it's not hard to track them down in in our you know area zip codes. And one of them I noticed was a guy named Justin Amash. So I thought, oh, well this guy. I don't know. I contacted all the people who were, and I I never got a hold of him. But then I saw that he was running for state house, and he lives three miles from my house. So I saw he was running for state house. And so I reached out to him. I said, I saw you're, you're a Ron Paul supporter. Would you like to meet sometime? And he said, sure, we met. I, and I remember coming back to talk to Marcy. And again, I was at this point, I was probably, you consider a libertarian party member. And I said to my wife, Marcy, said, you know, if this guy is half as good as he was when we talked, that I'm all into the Republican Party as long as he's in. Because he can transform this part. I mean, he can, he's radically different than the, the typical Republican. And, uh, but fortunately for me, he won't win because people I support never win, right? Uh, lo and behold, <laughs> he beat the competition. He beat a, um, a he beat he beat the established candidates pretty handily, 
and uh, and did amazing things. He was even more amazing in the house than and actually in office than he was with posting things on Facebook and and being the only one voting against things. He'd tell me stories of the. So we got we became very close friends, and we've been good friends ever since. Um, and so I got that's how I got to know him. And um, the neat thing about later that summer is the Paul brothers would have family reunions every, the Paul family had a family reunion every year and they would rotate it between all the five brothers. There are five of them, two in Texas uh, and then North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Michigan. And so in 2009, I guess it was, it was here in Michigan. And so my pastor said, Hey, do you want to come to my family reunion? I think my brother's going to be there and all that. So I said, sure. He said, but my, so Rand wasn't there because Rand was running for Senate at the time. So I didn't get to meet Rand. But I sat down with a dozen people, all of, all the Paul brothers, and just like had corn on the cob and hot dogs and just sat around and hung out. With yeah, them. You're it part was, of the family now. I mean, it was a very blessed experience. It was really neat. And, you know, Ron's like, you need to run for office some point. And, um, and so, and it was actually kind of funny because he has the one brother who's very liberal, who um, is a uh, Presbyterian pastor, I think, or anyway, and they were sort of, so Ron's going about how bad Obamacare would be if it got passed and those sorts of things. And, but, <laughs> so I had a really unique um, insight into sort of the, the movement and, and what, and the sort of the, the gist of all this story is, is that um, without a doubt, the libertarianism as a movement, as a, as a, um, a philosophy moved farther in that campaign because there, because there's a presidential campaign. And in the United States, you can run for any office and people just don't care about it because most, most um, large issues that people talk about where they actually are paying it most attention is going to be a presidential campaign and every other campaign doesn't really matter. And I think um, not to say people should run for those offices. I mean, it's super important, right? But if you want to move a philosophy, if you want to move, a, if you want a movement to start, you have to have a strong presidential campaign in this country. I mean, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but I think in this country, Having the right candidate with the right message is is a is a huge for your free movement. If you have a lousy candidate or a you know a mediocre message, like you know I've been to the camp the convention with Bob Barr or um, you know I, it's he's not exciting. He got some votes, whatever, but um, it wasn't it didn't change the conversation. And Ron Paul did, and I'm not exactly sure how it all happened. We'd always talked about you know was it YouTube? Was it the fact they kept him out? Was it but I think it's just something being different and being consistent and being in those debates. Those are very important, but, but having a, a message that, that resonates and that's different that people want different. And I think you saw the same thing in, in the Donald Trump campaign. And, and what I think you also see is that that presidential candidate becomes your de facto leader philosophically and ideologically for your party. And you've seen that with Trump where you see a Republican party that has very much changed in, in how it views free trade and how it um, views a lot of things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's essentially without a philosophy at this point. The, the philosophy is 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 Trump, which is basically a non-philosophy. It's a philosophy of whatever I think will work. And in some cases, that might end up being good. In some cases, that might end up being bad. But without a governing philosophy to guide the whole thing, um, it's it's very dangerous territory, I think. But I do see, and this is not the direction we were necessarily going to go on the show, but I, no, I want to keep going on it because it's it's all good stuff. That's what I like about, you know, we, we had talked before. I'm like, well, what's our plan here? Well, I don't like a plan. I like to see where it 
goes. So let's keep seeing where it goes. But that's the interesting thing about it is is like without an overriding philosophy governing the Republican Party, I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans that become even more disaffected. And of course, they're probably going to end up defaulting to voting for Donald Trump, as most Republicans do, as most Republicans will always end up supporting the ticket out of fear of the other. And similarly, the Democrats will probably end up supporting whoever the Democrats put up out of fear of Trump. Uh, but I still do think there is a golden opportunity that may be very similar to the one that we could have had in 2016 um, for libertarians to be, be, be another voice and to provide sort of a, a third way, another direction to at least get some attention. Whether or not um, they actually achieve an electoral success, I think that's a bit of a long shot. But I'm curious, you know, just having this conversation with you about, you know, how you saw the ineffectiveness of libertarian campaigns on the small scale locally and then how effective Ron Paul with a national platform was able to be just to inspire people and get them interested in the ideas and to sort of change that conversation altogether. Do you have an, a concept of like what would be a – what sort of qualities – I'm not going to ask you for a person, but what sort of qualities that a libertarian party presidential candidate could have um, considering the current state of affairs coming up in 2020? Like what sort of messaging would you want to see from from an LP candidate? I think you know if you're a libertarian candidate, I think you have – you focus on just one or two or three issues. And I think, I mean, I listened to Tom Wood's speech when he was talking about um, foreign policy. And I think he was the federal reserve. I think those are, um, and I don't, I think the federal, reserve, I know people were chanting end the fed <laughs> on the campus. I think foreign policy is the one wedge issue that you can bring yourself. You can differentiate yourself between the two major parties. And I think in that way, I think that is the, that is the issue that you can convince liberals uh, that if you if you are against warfare and you know generally poor people dying in wars, you need to oppose a strong state in that for that reason. There are things that the state can accomplish. Maybe we can think about other ways we can accomplish the same things, whether it's through voluntary you know organizations or charities. And for the for the Republicans, I think it's a little bit easier sell in some ways because you say we're not going to be a policeman of the world. There's no reason we should be funding you know basically to, to provide the defense services for the rest of the world. And, uh, and if you would think that government waste is bad, the Pentagon's probably the bad, the, you know, it's the wrong department to hold up as, as a showcase for, for wise government spending. Uh, and, you know, you even look at m- people who are in the military and, and by and large, they are, they are not fans of the way the military runs because they see the tremendous amounts of waste in, you know, personnel and equipment. And, and, you know, we spend every dime we got, so we get some more. We we don't want stuff, and they still bring it for us or whatever. Sure. It's, it's amazing how many people I've spoken to over the years that have come into libertarian ideas because they were in the military and because they saw a lot of the things going on that they didn't agree with and started to realize that the mission wasn't necessarily the one that they were sold on when, you know, when they first signed up. And then to hear someone like Ron Paul point that truth out to them and point out something they're already thinking, I think that's when, you know, people really have a, a light bulb that goes off that say, wait a minute, I've already been thinking what this guy is now boldly stating out here. So that, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that really can get people excited and get them to take something that was already in their mind and then actually begin to act on it and speak out about about it themselves. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is I think it's real important that it I think the Libertarian Party is not at risk of having if they have a bad candidate uh of harming the party significantly. I think their their risk is that they it's a missed opportunity. So I think it's not like a, a large established party like the Republican Democratic Party where they have a really bad candidate and it could you could significantly set them back for a while. I think they're it's it's just an opportunity and I I think uh, I'm more convinced, especially after watching what happened to Ron Paul. I mean, I know it didn't pan out the way people wanted it to, but I think there's a significant opportunity, and and it's going to be there 
as long as there's ballot access for the for the LP. So I think, you know, if the LP doesn't get a good can in 2020, if they get a good one in 2024, it's fine too. You never know what the other party's going to have, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to have more libertarian positions. They're not going to co-opt them. So I think I think that opportunity is going to be there for the LP for whenever they decide to pick the right person. And I'm not going to comment on the internal workings or machinations of the party. Oh yeah, we don't need to go into all that. That's another yeah. three-hour conversation. So, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest that that's probably is the biggest uh, thing. That's a, it's an opportunity that there's there's very little downside. The worst case, the party just doesn't grow that much more. But um, there's a lot of upside. So that that's what's potentially exciting about it is there's a lot of upside, and uh, that's why I hope that there can just be someone who's very bold, someone who can get a lot of attention, and hopefully pounding on a lot of those those, those same things, a lot of the big issues uh, that we are against. You know. Anti-war, anti-federal reserve, uh, against ending the war on drugs—the really big issues that really not only are, are the heart of the philosophy, but also really truly set us apart from the uh, the actions of the Democrats and Republicans. It doesn't matter at all who's the president. It's the money we lost and the lives we spent. It's time to bring the troops back home. We can't keep going. Right, guys and that was an excerpt from the song no more by zach kincaid because the united states has been at war for my entire adult life we have wasted over 250 million dollars every single day lost 7,000 troops to battle and we're losing 20 veterans a day to suicide this issue is what inspired me to become a libertarian and now it is time to say no more you know, once upon a time, in my parents' generation, the message of peace defined a generation of music. Yet somehow, 17 years of fighting has not seemed to inspire this generation. And right now, the ideas of liberty are growing because of podcasts like this one. And now you can help spread the message of peace and liberty through a song. Zach Kincaid is a fan of the show. He's a songwriter from Northern California who just released a brand new album, which includes this song, No More, inspired by countless conversations with veterans of this terrible and unnecessary conflict. Listeners of Lions of Liberty can get a free acoustic download of the song over at rotgutcountry.com slash roar. Go ahead and visit it, download the song, buy the album, and follow Zach Kincaid and his voice like a well drink in a dive bar. <laughs> you can find out more about Zach by heading over to Rotgut Country, that's R-O-T-G-U-T country.com, and across social media at Rotgut Country. You know, we, we have some other stuff to get into here. So why don't we talk a little bit about, um, obviously, you're a doctor. You've been dealing with the medical field. You have a whole podcast about this. Why don't we actually start talking about why you started the Paradox Podcast? Again, that's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, not with an X. So the Paradox Podcast, what inspired you to do all that? You've had some pretty interesting, uh, very libertarian guests on so far. Yeah, I have. Um, so I, I guess it started because I listen to podcasts, right? So I think that's probably how most people start right. podcasts. They're like, hey, I can do this. And and in medicine, there's an option to, you don't have an option to create much in medicine, uh, you know, take care of people and, you, but you don't, you know, there's no artistic sort of stuff that you do. Now I have very little, in fact, I'd probably say almost negative artistic talent. Uh, I have no um, musical talent, so I can talk. And so I thought, Hey, I could probably do a podcast. And I got inspired listening to Jason Stapleton, certainly talking about, you know, side hustles and things like that. I don't really need extra stream of income. 
but I thought that that's probably something I could do. I think I have a different perspective in the fact that I'm actually in the trenches of medicine. So when people are talking about the Affordable Care Act or they're talking about um, uh, drug shortages or physician suicide, I mean, I have a, a different insight and I have more credibility and certainly I have a better feel for what how it it's all shaking out and sort of how those things can be addressed and sort of maybe a better idea of the root problem. Uh, so that's why I decided to start the podcast. I thought I had some, I thought I had a good four or five episodes of, of content and I'm at, I just am actually publishing 14 tonight. So I've, I turned, I just keep getting more. I don't know if you have this problem too, but I, I think just when I think I'm, like, I'm running out of people to talk about and things to talk about, I have someone contact me or send me a book or something. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is pretty yes. cool. And so, and it's not always, and it's not a libertarian show in the sense that I don't, um, I don't ever talk about libertarianism. I think in my Patreon page, you know, it, it says that I'm a libertarian, but it's that's pretty much like the only places anywhere. It's just a descriptor of you, but it's not the focus of 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 the show in the marketing sense, right? And, and I and the because I think you know it's a pragmatic utilitarian sort of focus on stuff, but it, ultimately, when it when you look at the problems in medicine. Most of them focus from the fact that there's far too much state control or intervention or regulations. And, and so how do you tackle those problems and, and you know, how do you, how do you find solutions? And so, you know, I think most of the solutions rest in relying on patients and physicians and, uh, and to, to try and solve them themselves. And, and generally lots of the problems are caused by people who get in between them. And, uh, you know, whether that's government payers, insurance companies, whatever. And so that's what we talk about. So let's dig into that a little bit more. What are some of the biggest ways that the state intervenes in that relationship between the doctor and the patient that sort of distorts the market, just distorts that um, that entire function that really in an ideal society would really just be mostly between that doctor and that patient. But for some reason, there's all this other stuff that, that goes on in between. Right. And, and I mean, the, the stuff in between is always the stuff that's, that people feel. And that's, that's what causes the biggest problems. To I mean, the obvious things to talk about is the third-party payer system where, you know, I go into a grocery store, I buy a, a steak, I walk out of the store, I provide a good steak and, you know, the store has every incentive to provide me the right steak and to provide a price that's reasonable. I know how much money I've got, I know how much money I have to spend and, you know, I can figure out, you know, how much, depending on what quality, you know, I'm just feeding the kids. They don't care what they, you know, I can do ground beef versus if I'm just feeding my wife and I, we have something nicer. In medicine, it's not like that. In medicine, it's entirely different, right? So in medicine, I don't care. I walk in, I don't ever pay anything. And so if, as a consumer, I don't care what I get. I'm also, I, and for that reason, I'm less, um, I, I pay less attention since I'm not paying attention to this price, which gives you a sense of scarcity. I don't pay any attention to the other um, the other things that I should like you know what I could do to prevent me having to go in and buy steak every day. Maybe I should buy a refrigerator, right, or something like that, right? <laughs> and so I should take care of myself so I don't have to use use the services as much. Uh, for the same reason, the person who's selling the things, you know, the physician or the surgery service or the hospital or whatever, they have no incentive to control the cost because you know, of course, there's no price point for there's there's no one discerning you know how much they're they're spending. What I've really learned in the show, which has been the real, I've learned a lot in the show. And so I would highly recommend people go back and there are a lot of really good episodes because I learned a lot and I'm in the field, but I learned that for instance, insurance companies, they have no incentive to keep costs down, which was always the thing that I had trouble understanding why an insurance company would be okay with the hospital continue to jack up their prices, you know, every, you know, every year. Uh, and then within healthcare inflation, which, which far paces 
anything, I think maybe outside of higher education. Why are insurance companies okay with that? Because on the basic logic of it and through how most of us think of insurance companies, most of them think of, oh, these insurance companies, they just don't want to pay. They want to save money. They want to not pay out. So why would those two things don't seem to really jive? They don't want to pay out, but they're okay with the hospitals jacking up their rates. So what, what's, what's the disconnect there? So it, it's, it's one that obviously involves the government. And with so many things in, in medicine, there are so many other factors that it's hard to always say, well, this is one thing. Like you can say, well, this is one law for passing a gun ban that, you know, this is why this person have a gun or something. It's not like that in medicine. So if you don't have something, there's usually 20 things that affected it. And, and some of them are government related. Some are just market related that are in response to distortions caused by a government intervention. So when it comes to insurance, well, insurances are regulated generally at the state level. But they're also regulated in some of them on the federal level by requirements for what insurance has to offer or, you know, like, no, they have to accept all pre-existing conditions or they have to insure you till age 26. So you're married, you have a kid and your parents are paying for your kid and the delivery. I mean, weird stuff like this, right? And so the more provisions and the more regulations there are, it obviously makes the market smaller because the small players can't play. They can't, they can't pay to, to participate. And so from a regulatory standpoint, You've, you've got rid of all the small players. And so from a comp- competitive standpoint, now you have less people who are in the market who can compete. And, and so when you only have a few people in the market, they are competing on how much they spend. And so they have every incentive to not spend money. But they are, uh, if you get, when you get your bill, it says, you know, you get that large paper that comes ahead. This is not the bill. This is the explanation of benefits, right? Everyone's gotten that if they've gone to the hospital. You know, it was a $23,000 hospital bill we saved you $18,500, your copay is covered, and you only have to, you're, you owe $750 or whatever, right? Suddenly it sounds like a great deal somehow. <laughs> right. If they say we're going to cut off 90% of the charges, if the hospital charges instead of, instead of charging $10,000, charges $100,000, well, the, the insurance company still saves you that 90%, but now they're 10%, they're getting that other 10%, right? And so they they actually get more because they're, they're also getting more premiums out of you. And so for them, they actually make more money the more the charges go up. And when I talked to Keith Smith, who runs a surgery center in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, great guy. He's been on the show before. Yeah. And so, he, and I remember going to a conference here in Michigan where he talked about that and it never made any sense to me because he would go to these insurance companies and say, well, just come to me. I charge less than the hospitals because you want to save money, but they don't because their incentive is to increase the premiums, is to... Um, and to, and they they make money when you spend money and 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 in many cases now they're insurance companies that are owned in part by host, by healthcare systems, you know we have University of Michigan they have their own healthcare system and they have their own insurance programs right so you have there you have an extra sort of weird sort of uh, incentive for controlling costs right you have one side that supposedly wants them low and one side wants them high well that clearly can't possibly they can't possibly both be successful um, when they're sort of working together. So that's been, that was the, that I've learned, uh, the bigger thing too, for me, and this is something that very few people know, if you're not actually in medicine, if you're in medicine, you absolutely are aware of this and it's super frustrating, but there's a gigantic shortage of medications in this country of, um, generic medications. And this is the thing that was the most interesting episode I had, which is episode five, where we talked about group purchasing organizations and, in night, so if you think about hospitals at one time, they were, they were very small charity organizations. You know, you were Sisters of the Poor, they put it together in 1910 or 1920, they built the hospital in your town. They did not build, you know, 
$80 million structures with, it, with huge healthcare systems attached to it. They're very small and charitable organizations. So they didn't have any money and they had no administrative force. I mean, they're run by a couple of nurses and a couple of doctors who sort of had the privileges they provide to other local doctors. So for them to get group purchasing, um, to get bulk discounts for supplies like bedpans and syringes and needles, whatever hospitals needed at that time, sheets, you know, they would, they contracted these, they formed these co-ops and contracted with them to provide hospital supplies, which made a lot of sense because, you know, if you have 30 hospitals that kind of join together, they can get better prices. And so that's a way for them to control costs. Well, healthcare changed obviously through the 80s and 70s as they, things consolidated many ways because of government intervention through Medicare and uh, the CMS, Center of Medicaid, Medicare Services. But anyway, when they got bigger, Congress passed a law in 1987 called the Safe Harbor Act, where they allowed these group purchasing organizations and pharmacy benefit managers. And those are the things that, those are the companies that write contracts for the pharmacies. So the two parts there, you know, there's one for the hospitals, one for the pharmacies. So these group purchasing organizations right now control about 90% of all the supplies you get into the hospitals. And so if you are a medication producer, like let's say you make lidocaine, which is a common local anesthetic you use for, you know, numbing someone up, you have to you have to get into the formulary of these group purchasing organizations. And with the congressional law in 1987, you could, you had to pay membership to these group purchasing organizations to get your, to get your medication allowed by them. Well, that's all fine and good, except that this group purchasing organization would continue to jack up the prices. On the other end, they provide rebates. I'll put these air quotes here for those who can't, I'll tell you for those who can't see to the hospitals for using all the things on their formulary. So if as long as you don't buy outside the formulary, right? So what happens over time is this is 1987. We did not have drug shortage, significant drug shortage until mid 2000s, maybe 2008, 2009, they started showing up. Now it's a huge problem because what's happened is <clears throat> I used to be able to, an innovative uh, pharmaceutical company and I made, I did really good job making lidocaine, you know, this local anesthetic, but now it costs, say $20 million, I'm making up numbers, I don't really know the amount, say $20 million to, to be on this formulary, well, I can't, that margin for a generic like lidocaine, I can't make it in just one med medication. So now I need at least two. And eventually you get to the point where only you need at least 50 medicines or something to, to actually be able to get into this. So of course, it narrows down the market to where now very few people can actually work at that scale, right? And so this is, right? And so what happens then, there's a fire or there's a hurricane, or something happens. The FDA comes in and said, you've got rats running around your lab. So we're shutting you down. And now there's no flexibility. There's no slack in the market. Like normally, if there's a hurricane that rips through a toothpaste factory in San Juan, no one notices because there are 27, you know, 100 other toothpaste factories in the country. Right. But that's not the case in med medicine. I mean, that's obviously partially because the FDA and their regulations as far as, you know, who can make it and, you know, all those rules for production. But in many ways, it's because of these group purchasing organizations, which don't make anything. They don't produce anything. I mean, they don't uh, distribute anything. They don't warehouse anything. They just write contracts. And they just get, they make money from the hospitals. They make it from basically people paying to play. And so what happens now, is something happens like the hurricane that hit San Juan, and we suddenly have no normal saline in the country. Normal saline is sodium chloride and water. And we suddenly had a massive shortage for months 
in this country, that we didn't have ability to give anyone regular IV fluids, they come in dehydrated. So these groups have basically just cartelized the uh, the, the drug industry in in so many ways. It's interesting because I've done I've done probably seven or eight shows with doctors about very various different topics about government intervention and and how 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 it affects various different aspects of the industry. This is the first time I've heard about these groups. So there's always little different little aspects of things that we can find and say, oh. And there's this too. I mean, there's just there's just so many different factors out there that are continuing to cause the cartelization of the medical industry in so many ways. And that that is what all combined all causes all these prices on everything to go up, but whether it's medical devices, drugs, uh, medical services, hospital stays, I mean, everything. And then that's not even getting back into the fact that these hospitals and stuff then go ahead and jack up the prices because they end up making more money that way. It's really just a, a mess of a system. And I know we're not going to all solve it in one podcast, <laughs> but, but you, Dr. Larson, if there's I mean, where would we start here? Like if you became somehow, I don't know, um, Ron Paul uh, runs for president in 2020 and uh, becomes president and wants to bring you the head of the FDA. Like, are there any things that you, that could actually be done if the right person was in there that could at least you know bring a little bit of sanity back to the situation, um, scale things back in, in a certain way so we can start to get some semblance of a free market again? I mean, are there some small steps, you uh, realistic steps that you see that could be taken uh, in the short term if there was at least enough of a movement behind it? So you said small steps and realistic. So those are totally different things, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) So I mean, what you're asking really is like, if you could do whatever you wanted and you had no political repercussions and you could, right, what would you do to to fix the system? Well, there are a lot of things you could do that are pretty simple. Um, You could could eliminate the Safe Harbor Act or whatever. And so then you allow other competitors into the market. It takes some time to have new, new manufacturers. You loosen up the FDA's regulations. Uh, most of what they do is not very helpful. I had Mary, Mary Rubart on a show, and we kind of went through the FDA problems. They don't. They really. They rarely help prevent any disease. They cause a. They cause the prices to be much higher for pharmaceuticals and cause shortages, which really costs lives when you have limited access to, say, um, chemotherapeutic agents, things like that. So you can, you can scale back that significantly. I mean, most of these agencies, I feel like, in many ways. They, you could try and reform them, but you almost in many ways need to just eliminate lots of them or many of their functions because you know, you can change the person at the head of the EPA, but the EPA essentially is going to have the same people working at the EPA, right? These people have been bureaucrats right. there for 30 years or their entire career or whatever. Uh, so as with anything, it's and it's it's really the overall culture that needs yeah. to change, and the culture it's got to start with the people that that send people to office that then make those decisions. It's a you really need to get a a sea change of ideas to really get things going. I mean, I think I think ultimately what you need to, you need to do. I mean, in medicine, what you need to really do first and foremost that will solve many of the problems is just have pe- patients pay for their care, uh, whether that's through HSAs, whether that's through direct primary care, whether that's through you know. I talked to a guy about the next episodes on crypto medicine, which is really interesting but kind of hard for me to comprehend. But you have to have some other way of where you have real price signals within the market, so you have both players in paying attention to costs. If that happens, then people are going to say, well, why is it this much, right? I mean, because right now it's so far, they're so far from removed, they don't know any way to fix it. And they don't even know where, the, they just know their premium is really expensive. And they know they shop around, the premium is the same everywhere they go. No one can go in. I mean, by law, I'm not allowed to charge less for some people versus others. I mean, you know, my, my rate has to be the same no matter who I talk to. 
uh, additionally, if I'm really good or really bad, I get paid exactly the same. That's crazy that you you can't even necessarily offer discounts to, let's say, if you wanted to create a pool of patients that were sort of on a, s- a smaller income scale and charge them differently, you couldn't even do that. And I want to be clear, you if you if you accept government payers like Medicare or Medicaid, you right. can't do this. You can they do right. allow a cash discount on time at time of service, but outside of that, you're everyone has to get paid, which it makes sense from CMS's standpoint because they want to make sure they're not getting hosed and having, you know, you're offering these discounts to all these other people and yet they're, they're, you're charging them the full amount. Now their full amount, of course, is about 30% of commercial payers. Um, so it's the whole insurance system is really messed up. I mean, I think that's, if you could somehow scale that back and go back to what it was like, you know, the 1950s, I mean, clearly medicine is different in other ways than as well, but where you have, because then you're having, you're having discerning customers, uh, patients, who are going to say, is it really important to do this? Where's the best place for me to get this lab work done? You know, because they're going to they're gonna be worried about things like not just convenience, but also cost. I can tell you as someone who switched to an HSA, which is a health savings account this last year, much different in our purchasing, uh, purchasing pattern. And, I, you know, I'm pretty libertarian, right? So I'm always paying attention to cost, but now... I'm much more sensitive to it. So I'll, I'm willing to drive an extra two miles to a different pharmacy to save myself a hundred bucks on a, on a medication because they seem totally random as far as which, you know, this pharmacy is 160, this other one's 60 for the same medication. And I, you know, and the next time the me- next medicine will be the opposite way. So I need my other prescription sent to a different pharmacy. Uh, but you just, you know, those things make you think about, think twice about you know, how important is it to get whatever. I, mean, I think medicine is important, but I need to make sure, you know, save money. So you're, I mean, there's no question that HSAs are a good idea, but you need to do more than that. And so, but that is a way of introducing sort of a market, market forces. But you just, right now we only have 3% of people in the United States on HSAs. So that's not enough to make a significant dent in the healthcare costs. But, you know, that expanding HSAs, making healthcare, um, uh, maybe you give tax credits to everybody for buying healthcare. I don't know. I mean, that's you know, right now it's just through your employer. So at least you remove the employer part of the healthcare. There are a lot of things you could do. I mean, obviously Republicans haven't been serious about it. Um, I talked about, talked to Justin Abosh in my third episode about it. And he's kind of like, you know, no one in DC is really serious about these things. He's has his ideas, but no one really wants to, they were never serious. Right. I mean, sort of like, I remember right. <clears throat> this is when I got first disillusioned with Republicans and, well, I was in college, <clears throat> excuse me, in 19, well, mid nineties, when Newt Gingrich took over and the Republican revolution in the mid nineties, and they finally took back the house since the first time in 1950. All right, things are going to change. We're going to reduce the deficit. We're going to cut spending. And yeah, none of that happened. I mean, I, they, they did some welfare reform, which was good. And that was kind of the extent of it. And so it suddenly became once we're in power. Well, the reason we didn't do it is because we didn't have the Senate. And then, you know, they, oh, we didn't have the presidency. Oh, we don't have the Supreme Court. Right, so they never get any, they never get enough power in order to implement what they were never going to implement to begin with, and so that's and that's the frustration that that Republicans, I think, you know, in many ways are waking up to. But well, yeah, the major parties stay in power via the rhetoric. They stay in power by being able to complain about the same things that the other side is either doing or going to do in the devastating world that will come about if you don't continue to vote for them. Uh, they don't retain power through actually acting on their supposed principles. So I think to me, that's what sets, and I'm using small L here, that's what just sets libertarians in general apart, is that we actually do have sort of a guiding philosophy and uh, at least attempt to try to uh, sort of stay the course with it. So uh, 
Dr. Larson, I'm, I'm very glad that you're out there uh, as a, a voice, even though um, you don't label the paradox a libertarian uh, doctor podcast. Um, I think anytime that those ideas are seeping in, and very, it's probably better that you don't, actually, because you're probably able, able to reach more people in the medical community that aren't going to be turned off by some sort of political label, but you're still able to work a lot of those uh, ideas in there. So I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, before I let you go, why don't you just give a little roundup of how people can find more information about yourself and, of course, how they can find the Paradox uh, podcast and everything else you got going on. If there is uh, any, any other projects in the work, feel free to plug away. Well, I don't have either projects aside from just trying to get this thing going. You know, I've I, we've had quite a bit of success with the podcast. I'm not exactly sure what successful is. I'm beyond the median uh, for downloads. So I guess that's something. If you've got more than seven episodes, you're doing you're already doing better than half of them. So, <laughs> right. And I've gone past the seven episode hurdle, which they said. So I'm at, I'm at 14. All right. Well, welcome to the club then. You're a professional now. <laughs> uh yeah i'm not gonna quit my day job but it's been it's been a lot of fun i i would recommend anyone to come by it's not designed for physicians I, it's the show is is for physicians to better understand the problems they face in the trenches of medicine but it's also designed for a way for physicians to provide this show certain episodes especially to their fr- friends families and colleagues to help them understand because i i think if there's one thing i think i'm pretty good at is being able to distill somewhat complicated issues that will uh, or sometimes technical into some way that a lay person can understand and so when we talk about you know drug shortages we walk through and, and so you understand and you'll be the smartest person in the block when it comes to drug shortages and why your grandmother couldn't get that chemotherapeutic agent right so those are the things that i that i'm uh, looking to do and um i think we've been pretty successful so if anyone wants to find out more there's obviously a facebook page at the paradox and again it's the paradox is p-a-r-a-d-o-c-s i'm on twitter at uh paradox uh and then the, the website's easiest way to find it is the paradox is T-H-E-P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S.com. And you can find out more, sign up for the email list, and then find the episodes. And you can certainly find the, the podcast is streaming all over the place. It's also on YouTube now. I found it, my uh, podcast converter automatically put it to YouTube if I wanted to. So that made it pretty simple. So it's on YouTube now if you like to stare at the picture of my logo and then listen to me. So However, however you like to get the show. I'm always amazed. I, I we, we put our podcast on YouTube too, and I figured no one cares. And every once in a while, I, I meet people that are like, oh, I'm so glad you put them up on YouTube. It's the only way I, I, I listen to things. I'm like, okay, all right. I don't know why you do, but okay. Uh, that's why we do it. So. I, and I mean, I'm thinking, what, should I have video or something? But that's really complicated. And I, you know, it's <clears throat> the, the hardest thing I found with the show is to try and get two doctor schedules who generally have families and busy practices and stuff to try and coordinate right. for one hour a week is actually really, really challenging. It's be a task and so that's own. actually been the hardest part about the show, but it's, you know, I have a lots of late night interviews and weird times, but again, it's been a lot of fun. It's been learned. I've learned a lot, which I think if you, anyone who's been in education, whether it's medical students or, you know, college or high school, whatever, you end up learning far more than you end up teaching. And so I think that's, uh, I found that in the show, I've learned a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, I thought was, I was going to be spewing information and I've really been probably more of a sponge which is, I think, the way it should be. Absolutely. I mean, I, I started this podcast almost five years ago because I wanted to. I wanted people to learn more about the ideas of liberty and learn more about different viewpoints. But really, I think I've done the most learning uh, this this whole time uh, in so many different ways, not just about the philosophy itself, about the Libertarian Party, about the political aspects, about uh, persuasion, how to speak to people differently. I definitely speak about things much, much differently than I did five years ago. So there's so much you can learn just by doing a podcast, just by 
bringing on other people and having these conversations. So to me, that, that's really been the best part for myself. Uh, I'm glad it's, it's, uh, it seems to be as well for you. So Dr. Larson, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, we will definitely be in touch and keep up the great work. And of course, keep on roaring. Thanks a lot, Mark. Appreciate it. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation as much as I did with Dr. Eric Larson. And please do check out the Paradox podcast as well as my man, Zach Kincaid, and his song, No More. Be sure to head over to rotgutcountry.com slash roar for that free, that's right, free download of the acoustic version of that great anti-war country song. And uh, before I wrap up here, all I want to really do is remind you, if you're new to this program, or just tell you, I guess, if you're new for the first time, that we are a variety show here. We are the only libertarian variety show out there. We have three shows per week, soon to be four when we do the Candidates of Liberty show, which is coming in mid-August. But as of now, you can find, of course, myself here every single Monday hosting Interviews like the one you hear today and great roundtable discussions such as libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. Uh, You're also going to hear Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, as well as my man, John Odie Odermatt, wrapping things up every week on Fridays with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. And of course, like I said, coming soon, we don't have an exact date yet, but sometime in mid-August, we will see the debut of Candidates for Liberty, featuring short interviews with libertarian candidates all across the globe. If you are a candidate or have a candidate, again, even doing this, we probably won't be able to get everyone in, I'll be perfectly honest, but please do reach out anyway. Uh, Mark, M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com. That's the best place to send your suggestions uh, for candidates to be interviewed. We already have a very, very, very long list. So we're going to do our best to get to as many of you as we can before November. Uh, So please do reach out, though. We'll try to at least give you a mention, if nothing else. And I think I can now reveal who my first guest will be. My first guest will be Laura Ebke, who recently switched from the Republican Party to the Libertarian Party and is up for re-election in Nebraska State House. So that should be a great interview. I'm really looking forward to speaking with her. Until next time folks live long and live free